This podcast is now available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and more. Please leave a written review on whatever app you get this podcast from. Spoiler alert! When this podcast talks about Game of Thrones on HBO, it talks in the context of the most recently aired episode. And when it talks A Song of Ice and Fire books, it talks in the context of the most recently released book by George R. R. Martin. You've been warned. How do you think I'm gonna get along without you when you're gone? You took me for everything that I had. me out of my Hidden Citizens coming at you on a Thursday. They're doing Queens, another one bites of dust. Seems kind of appropriate, you know, since there's some implied death in this episode. Serial Pharrell, Septa Mordain, Septa Mundane, if you were to ask either Sansa or Arya, probably. But Septa Mordain, poor Septa, she did nothing but try to teach those girls what was right and wrong, and she never got much credit for it. Anyway, all of the information regarding the music that you hear on this podcast can be found in the show notes, please. Click on some of those links or, at very least, uh, check out some of the websites that are listed to support the artists uh, so that they won't sue me for using their stuff. This time around, we are covering Game of Thrones, Season 1, Episode 8, The Pointy End, written by the author of the source material, George R.R. R. Martin, and it was directed by Daniel Minahan. I believe this is Minahan's last turn at directing for Season 1. It's his final hoorah for this season. And, uh, of course, you can never get enough George when you're a book reader. But I'm not going to rest on those laurels. He did He did a lot of uh, writing for television before he ever wrote Game of Thrones. So uh, he's got some experience at this. Anyway, you are listening to Game of Thrones, Matt's audio blog. And you can find all of the back episodes of this particular podcast and links to all of the podcasts that I've done in the past at mattsaudioblog.com. That's M-A-T-T-S audioblog.com. It's also where you can find links to all of the uh, podcast apps that are currently supporting this podcast. And if you have an ID for any of those, be it Stitcher or an iTunes ID uh, so that you can go to Apple Podcasts, please Leave me a written review of this podcast. Find find the link for this store uh, for whatever app that you use, or even if you just have an ID in that app. It helps me so much to stay noticeable among like 17 billion podcasts that are out there covering Game of Thrones. And this one, of course, is very late to the game, so I'm not really in the main search engine. If you just type in Game of Thrones then you can't really find me, um, I don't think. So, uh, although I'm pre-recording these, and it will have been a while um, since I recorded this when this episode actually comes out. So it may be in the search engine now if you just type in Game of Thrones. I don't know. But, I mean, I'm hoping that it is. But either way, reviews of the written kind really help. And if you like this podcast, then please also subscribe on whatever app that you use because that helps me as well. If you have any feedback for this podcast, especially regarding Season 1, if you get any of that into me before June 2nd, 2018, you can be included in the feedback podcast that will occur after we conclude covering Season 1, Season 1, Episode 10. You submit feedback by sending an email to mattsaudioblog at gmail.com. That's M-A-T-T-S 
audioblog at gmail.com, or you can tweet at Matt's G-O-T blog, M-A-T-T-S G-O-T blog on Twitter, and hopefully we'll have a, a nice-sized feedback episode. My goal is to build a community where we can all talk back and forth about things. Granted, uh, the conversations are a little bit one-sided when I'm pre-recording stuff. I can't really include the latest feedback or whatever that I get the day of, um, but that's what the feedback episodes are going to be for. They're just a single episode in between each season of our rewatch where I get all of the ideas from that season from you, all of the great ideas, I'm sure they will be, and we'll discuss them at length in a massive feedback episode, which I'll also give you, you know, the latest news on Game of Thrones Season 8. Not spoilers, just news. So once again, June 2nd, 2018, that is your deadline for submitting any feedback regarding Season 1. Well, I mean, really, you can submit Season 1 feedback anytime you want, Say, you know, it's March of 2019 and you just happen to come upon this podcast and listen to this episode. You can submit feedback. I just that uh, I'll have to include it in whatever the next feedback episode is coming up. That's all. Anyway, it's Thursday. That means that we flip our usual schedule. Instead of doing the discussion of the story first, we do the discussion of the music first. So let's get into that. We're talking a theme that is aria and serial related and kind of sets up elements that will feature in a lot of aria themes in the future. An analysis of the music in HBO's Game of Thrones. Left high, left low. Do you break anything? The central of mine. And that from the opening of this episode, and it's really the last chance to visit this theme of Arya and Sirios, since we'll really never see Serial Pharrell again, at least. I mean, if, if you believe that Serial Pharrell might still be alive, perhaps there's a chance you'd see him in Season 8, but I kind of doubt it at this point. I don't know. I'm not going to shun it. I would love to see it as a, just as a fan. Of course I would love to see it. Uh, but this is the theme of the water dance. And again, it's part of the opening where the Lannister men are attacking the Stark people, uh, even as Arya's getting her lesson from Serial. And got to be honest, this clip really isn't the world's best representation of the theme. So what I want to do is I want to go and play part of the track from the season one official soundtrack. And it's actually entitled The Pointy End, the same as this episode. But this piece of music was actually used during Arya and Sirio's very first meeting at the end of the third episode, Lord Snow. Here's that.
Now you may ask me, if we're not really going to hear this theme again, then why explore it? Well, for one, I like it. <laughs> I like it because it kind of represents Arya's more innocent side before things start to take a dark turn, really, in this episode, which we'll talk more about in the story discussion. But more importantly, this theme with Sirio, who, again, is from Bravos, mind you, it kind of has a big influence on yet another theme in Arya's future, and that's the Faceless Man theme. And, of course, we know that the Faceless Man, or the Faceless Men, the House of Black and White, is in Bravos as well. So there's a commonality in that, and it's funny because Ramin ended up taking elements from this theme and applying them to a new theme for the Faceless Men. But the first commonality between this piece and the future Faceless Man theme is the meter and rhythm. Uh, what I mean by meter and rhythm is uh, how many beats that this piece has in each single measure, how we count this piece out. And this one is centered in the meter of 6-8. And 6-8 is kind of unique because the meter can be felt in two different ways at the same time, actually. It can be felt in three quarter notes like this on the piano, or it can actually just be counted as two dotted quarter notes like this. Now, it's not important for you to remember any of that, really. But what is important for you to remember is how that sounds and feels, especially when both of those kind of rhythms are played simultaneously on top of each other, because that's what you hear in the sound of the drums in this serial piece. Uh, the rhythm sounds like this. So there's two different rhythms being played against each other, and that automatically creates a complexity. And that's something that makes both Sirio's mission, say, as first Sea Lord de Bravos, and his decision to defend Arya, and his decision to teach Arya, and to show her the complexity of the water dance, this isn't an easy thing to learn. You know, Arya's taking to it pretty quickly, but it's not an easy thing to learn. Similarly, the Faceless Man theme which is first introduced in season two, it also has this exact same complex rhythm going underneath it because the faceless men, uh, they have a complex mission and they come from a complex place. Both Sirio and the faceless men come from Bravos, and Bravos is a place where you can worship just about any kind of god you desire. And so you have a lot of different religions going on. You have a lot of different cultures mixing together. That makes Bravos itself a very complicated place, and that's why the complicated rhythm works well as a representation of that. Now, both this piece that you just heard, uh, that's in season one, and the piece in the future, they also have plucked instruments that are carrying either melody or harmony in different capacities, sometimes both. And Jawadi actually seems to like uh, the timbre of the dulcimer for Arya a lot. Um, that's a very interesting choice. Um, I suppose it does represent Arya well because it can be plucked. It's, it's actually a hammer that hits the string, but the sound can be produced either in a stinging fashion or in warm notes or in a searching kind of way or a playful kind of way, um, depending on how you actually strike the instrument or how you actually play the instrument. And all of this really kind of represents Arya's nature in a way. Um, she can be very harsh. She can be warm to people that she starts to care about. And then as she loses those people, then, uh, of course, it uh, it makes her tough again. Uh, 
But harmonically, this particular piece does something very interesting. And again, it's played by one of these plucked instruments. But Javadi keeps the harmony, like you've heard me talk before about whether something is major or minor and how that dictates our mood. Well, here, Javadi actually keeps the major or minor ambiguous. And how? He does it by instituting this line. And what this line actually does is it avoids playing any kind of third of the chord at all. It doesn't play a note which will define the chord as major or minor. It avoids the note that will define it as major or minor. You don't get this major note in there. Or this minor note in there. In actuality, I only played a part of that clip from the pointy end, but if you listen to the full cut on the official soundtrack, you will hear sometimes that the melody itself uses a major third, and in other places it uses a minor third. And it's great because it's kind of a foreshadowing of the ambiguousness that we feel about Aria in a way, right? I mean, maybe not at this point, but by the time we get to season seven, Aren't you conflicted because even though you don't want Arya to become this cold-blooded killer, you're sometimes deeply satisfied or actually want her to take someone off her list? I mean, it's hard to root for somebody to do this and then still not condemn her for doing it at the same time. At least it's hard for me. And this dance between major and minor that happens in the melody of this explains the confliction that's in all of us and in Serio and uh, forecasts the confliction that will be in Aria as well. Without having a definitive major or minor, or sometimes major and sometimes minor in this piece, you get happy or sad or scared for Aria all at the same time. So again, the lack of a defined harmony so that a melody can be happy or sad or scared creates the ambiguousness that ultimately becomes a big part of Arya's future. And you find similar kinds of things in the Faceless Man theme as well. But the thing that you find most comparatively about the melodies between this theme here and the Faceless Man theme is that Javadi uses exotic scale modes to create the melodies in this piece. Rather than just your typical major scale or your typical minor scale, he uses a mode of those scales, meaning that it may be an A minor scale, say, but he plays it from E to E. And that's exactly what he does here. He takes a mode from a minor scale in order to create this interesting melody. Now, that mode is a harmonic minor scale from the fifth scale step to fifth scale step, like this. And you really don't need to know that. Again, I'm not going to bore you with just what the technical terms of everything is, but you can hear how that doesn't sound quite normal, right? It sounds unnatural. It sounds different than what you typically hear on the radio. Exotic. And in a similar way, he uses all of these same kind of elements in the Faceless Man theme. Um, and I'll play that for you now so you can kind of compare. You'll hear the rhythm that is similar. You'll hear uh, the kind of instrumentations that are used that is similar. 
And you will also uh, hear that there's a certain amount of exoticness to the melody as well. This clip is from the Season 2 official soundtrack entitled Valor Morgulis. Now, see how similar that all sounds? It's not the same, granted, it's definitely not the same, but it's similar in a lot of ways. And that's because Ramin decided, well, I have all this Bravos material that I used with Arya and Sirio in the first season, and ultimately Arya is going to go to Bravos herself, so I'm going to take some of those elements to give some continuity to Arya's musical story. Um, relative to her journey, the, this foreign journey, this journey of ambiguity. And it really all started out with Sirio Pharrell. So, Season 1, Episode 8. The Pointy End, written by the author of the source material, George R. R. Martin, directed by Daniel Minahan. And uh, let's address this just right out front. I'm both a book reader and a TV show watcher. And uh, there's been some decisions in terms of interpreting some of George's source material that I've had some issue with Dave and Dan on. On the other hand, with the current state of where the series is as opposed to where the books are what Dave and Dan choose to do with the story from here on out is really their decision I'm sure George gave them some bullet points all the way up to the end of the story because I do believe that George has it all mapped out even though if he can't seem to put the words together <laughs> uh, fast enough for my the, my tastes anyway but uh, you know as far as Dave and Dan just going for what they want to go for, that's fine. And I think it shows that they're capable of creating compelling stories, maybe not quite as rich as the books or quite as rich as having source material to interpret. But that's just a personal observation, and I'm sure that many TV people will say, well, why... You know, why are you always slamming the TV show? I'm not. I love this TV show. I just happen to have an appreciation for the books that is greater than my appreciation for the television show. And that's all. I think that there probably are some TV people out there who have gone back and read the books. And maybe they say, no, nah, I like the TV show better. And that's fine, too. But this is the first episode that this podcast is covering that uh, both worlds really, literally collide. Uh, when you have George R. R. Martin, who was a TV writer, he wrote for The Twilight Zone, I believe. That was well before he came up with his idea for A Song of Ice and Fire, or maybe he already had the idea in his head. Uh, but he certainly didn't write anything until, I think, 1996. 
uh, was when he started writing Game of Thrones or completed Game of Thrones or something like that. And I've always found that George uses the medium of television when he has the chance to dig in to doing the TV thing very well and gives his TV scripts just as much depth as he does his books. But I don't know if that's necessarily the case in this particular episode. I think this one was given to George because there was an awful lot of material that had to be covered. And since George is quite adept at his knowledge of all of this, he was able to thread it all together very well uh, with, with themes and what have you. But I don't really consider this episode to be superior than any of the other episodes in this particular season. I do feel like that everybody who was making this particular episode took extra care in what they were doing, perhaps. Because things seem fairly deliberate in this episode. Maybe more so than in other episodes. Or maybe that's just my bias uh, making something up in my head in terms of my perception. But that's really the only surfacey thing that I have to talk about is the fact that I enjoyed this episode because of George is writing it and because I felt like that it was very well done. But again, I won't say that it's the best episode of this particular season either. So with that, let's talk about the story and we'll start with my three big things. Three three big things. First big thing, Arya. She's lost a father figure even before she loses her own father. At least to her, he's lost. She'll never see him again. None of the rest of us have ever seen him again, so we have to assume, or maybe we don't, but most of us assume that Cyril is dead. And on the heels of that, it's also her first kill. And one thing that I found very interesting watching it this time around, because I didn't read George's book until after the first season of Game of Thrones aired, but there does seem to be a slight difference in the way things go down for Arya that's more accidental, perhaps, in the television version. And what I'm wondering is if Daniel Minahan and Dave and Dan all got together and said, look, let's not have a little girl purposefully kill anybody. Let's save that drama for further down the road or something like that. Or I wonder if George actually softened up the writing a little bit uh, in order to improve his first draft in the book. Um, you know, because uh, maybe he looks back upon that first kill as uh, with a little bit of regret in the way that he wrote it. Or maybe not. Maybe he wrote it exactly the same and Dave and Dan just said, no, we're not going to have Maisie portray a, a cold-blooded murderer right off the bat. Not that Arya was a cold-blooded murderer in book one. It, it was kind of accidental, just not quite as accidental as the TV show made it seem. And that's fine. Uh, again, interpretations are fine. And actually, I like this better because it helps me uh, not scour at Arya for a while until things go further down the path. 
The other thing about this, though, of course, is that because Serio is gone and Arya thinks that Serio uh, is gone, Marion Trent now subconsciously joins the Hound on Arya's list, which she will make in the future. She hasn't quite got her prayer yet of the names. I don't think she gets that until season two with Yorin. But when she starts making the list, um, Marin Trant will be part of it and the Hound will be part of it. The Hound for Micah and Marin Trant now for Cyril Farrell. Along with several other names regarding her father, too. Uh, but for now, um, these are the only two names on her list. The Hound and Marin Trant. But it's so weird to see this girl who just wanted to learn how to fight with swords. The the girl who had told her father just a couple episodes ago, I don't really want to be a lady of the castle. I, I want to fight like knights and everything. The, the little girl who wore a knight's helmet when she first saw King Robert, you know, and that Ned had to take it off her head. That actually, until the Micah thing, Arya was actually looking admirably at the Hound. She thought he was cool. She loved his helmet. And these kind of things change over a period of time to where you look at Arya and you mourn the loss of this little girl to circumstances that are very harsh and unpleasant and sad in their own way and horrifying in their own way. But this truly is, this episode is the pointy end of Arya's innocence. She may have been mad at the Hound, and she may keep that anger and turn it into vengeance later on, or want to. But this is definitely um, something to where, you know, if she was going to give the Lannisters any chance at all, it ended with this. That's for sure. So that's my first big thing. My second big thing is actually all of the Stark boys. Because there's a lot of emotional resonance in all of this too. And in this episode, that's the thing. It's like the George episode, I found myself clinging much more to the emotion of it. And caring about the characters than I did to the, well, what does this mean for, say, like, Rob Stark in Season 3? You know, I'm not looking at layered clues or anything like that like I was with some of the other episodes. With this one, it's much more about, well, how do I feel about this character right now? And one of the things that I felt about the Stark boys was Rob. Let's start with Rob, the oldest. He's having leadership thrust upon him. His father has been thrown in jail. And he's having leadership be thrust upon him. He's being told by Lewin that Sansa's letter is nothing but the Queen's words. And he decides to call the banners. And he's terrified. Who wouldn't be terrified? Let's even give Rob the benefit of the doubt and say he's like 1920. You're in your first year of college. Your father has been thrown in jail. And you now have to lead a host in battle as a freshman in college. If you're even that old. Now, the guy you're going to be facing against, he's an old general that's already been through all of West Point, fought in a couple of wars. Why wouldn't you be scared? 
And Theon points that out, that it is actually a good thing for Rob to be scared. It just really got me. And again, not by playing the result, because you know what happens at the, at the Red Wedding and such, but this is just because Rob is so young and he's had all of this thrust upon him and he has to spend time earning the trust of these guys, of a great John Umber who appears in this episode, which is fantastic. Or even the trust of his mother. Think about when Catelyn sees him and, and how... She exhibits this fear, even though she does her best to, to swallow that fear. Uh, she's a perfect exemplification of what I was feeling for Rob when he decided to do this. Because he's just a boy. Callan says, she says, I remember when you were just a baby. And now you're leading a host of war. It's extremely emotional for me. And again, not because I know what's going to happen to all of these people. But just because it's so tragic that in, in a single episode, every single Stark child has to grow up. Not only does Rob have to grow up, he has to he has to leave Winterfell to Bran. He has to man Bran up. Not only does he have to, to try and find a way to man himself up, but he has to man Bran up. And and Speaking of being really young and thrust into a leadership situation, Bran now has to manage Winterfell. Nobody's going to be there to run it for him. He'll have to trust Lewin. But now, you know, imagine you're in fourth grade and your college-aged brother says, hey, you got to run the house now, okay? This this guy will stick around and help you a little bit, but you got to make the decisions, I mean, I'd be like, okay, here we go. Let's play Xbox all day. That's what I want to do. But these are the different kinds of responsibilities, and we'll see more of that in season two than we will here. But it's just, again, Bran is just 10 years old, nine years old, if that, and he's being thrust into this situation. And on top of that, then he goes to the, the tree in order to pray for Rob's safety and all that, because, I mean, who doesn't want their big brother to return? You know, not only that, but then he won't have to do all of these adult things. He can go back to being a kid and riding around on his saddle, because Rob said, you can't leave the grounds as long as uh, as long as long you're here until I return. So, he, he like, all of the fun has been taken out of Bran's life. But, so, he naturally wants Rob to get this stuff settled and get back home. And... He prays to the tree, and here you have Osha again, uh, bringing in some more of that northern wisdom that the old gods are, are listening to him, and the wind is whistling through the, the leaves, and that's their way of speaking to him, or so she believes. And Bran uh, quite poignantly points out that it's just the wind. But somebody is watching. That's the thing, and that's the part where Osha was right. There is this network of weirwood trees and if you recall, when we get uh, into what season is that? Season six of Game of Thrones. Bran is uh, has to merge warg with the uh, with the tree roots in order to be able to, to see stuff. And it's at the base of this great weirwood tree. And it is the weirwood tree network that allows him to see a lot of things that the trees have recorded. All of the the, the it's like the great 
memory cells. The trees are, are the memory banks of the world history, and that's how he gains all of this knowledge. But it, it's interesting because just as this one challenge of running Winterfell is placed in front of him, Osha is kind of more or less pointing out to him what his greatest feat will be, and that is to become the Three-Eyed Raven. And then you have Rickon, who is such a young child, but seems so certain that no one is coming home, that Ned, Catelyn, and Rob, none of them will be coming home. He's seen their deaths. And Bran is, is like saying, no, we'll see them again, you know, and, and, and Rickon is like, no, we won't. So that's kind of a green seeing ability right there. And think about this. This is the last time that Rickon and Bran will ever see their brother Rob. That's very sad. But all three of these brothers have at least an alluded to superpower, so to speak. If you recall in season two, uh, Lancel brings up the fact that Rob is kind of will turn into a wolf and whatever. And that is an allusion to the fact that Rob used his warging powers to control Grey Wind, his direwolf. And that means that that Rob can kind of do the warging thing or so it's implied. With uh, Rickon. Well, I just talked about it. He can see a future where no one is coming home. And that's kind of the green seer, the three-eyed raven thing, where he can see into the future. But Bran, we learn, has both powers. We've already seen him have dreams about the crypts in this season. It hasn't been revealed exactly what it means yet, but it will be, I think, in the next episode. And so that's kind of the three-eyed raven or the green seer ability to see into the future or to see current events a long way away or to see way deep into the past. Don't forget that Jojen Reed is a green seer of sorts uh, himself. And he's the one that first teaches Bran how to hone that power a little bit until the three-eyed raven uh, does that. But Bran can warg like his brother Rob and be a green seer like his brother Rickon. And so that makes him the best candidate to become the three-eyed crow. Because not only can he see things through the Weirwood network, but because he can warg, he can send birds over the wall so that he can see where the Night King is. And we saw him do that in season seven. So all of this is to a, a great advantage for Bran. So it's interesting that each one of the True Blood Starks exhibit some of the old powers, what we consider the old god powers, greed seeing and warging. Each of the brothers does. But Bran, the one who becomes the three-eyed raven, he's the only one out of those three that survives. Man, all three of my big things are, are Stark-oriented because now I'm going to shift to Sansa where Sansa's words become the queen. Sansa is totally manipulated in this episode. But again, you're in seventh grade. You got a bunch of adults telling you that your dad is an evil man. Arya probably would have gotten herself killed because she just would have fought to the end against this. 
But Sansa, I mean, she's got a boyfriend. Her boyfriend's mom doesn't want her to be her son's girlfriend anymore. You know, unless she does this. Well, of course, Sansa's going to do this. Sansa wants to be queen just like the queen wants to be queen. And she really thinks that Joffrey's cute, for crying out loud. Oh, he may be a little horrid, but he's just a boy. And he'll change. He'll grow up. Now that he's king, he'll grow up. So, yeah, Sansa wants to be with Joffrey. That's nothing unteenage like Not at all. The problem is that Sansa doesn't realize how deeply hurting what she's being asked to do is. She's being manipulated and the real evil does come in what's happening with that united council urging her to write this letter. And when you think about the stuff in the future with Littlefinger and the way that he kind of, you know, says she's she's such an innocent and whatever uh, about Sansa, he kind of comes to her defense a little bit to the queen and all of this is clearly staged Littlefinger is playing Sansa just as much as Cersei is or is he even if that is the part that he's given is he already turning wheels about Sansa just in the interest of chaos I mean he's already shown an active interest in her anyway at the at the tourney of the hand I mean it's all creepy as bleep and it's sick, and it's, but it's Littlefinger. So can you ever count that out? And then you have this scene of Sansa pleading for mercy for, for Ned to Joffrey, and this is all part of the Queen's plan as well, at least so that maybe they can manipulate Ned into legitimizing him as an heir rather than carrying this on. And then, you know, I think that Cersei's like, well, then we can just send him off to the wall and we'll never have to hear from him again. He can say whatever he wants up there because none of those people are coming back down to say anything anyway. The Night's Watch take no part in the realms of men. They only defend it. So I think for Cersei, this is the perfect win. If she can just get Ned to say, yes, Joffrey should be king. And then they say, okay, well, we're going to, rather than execute you, we're going to give you somewhat of a pardon, but we're going to send you to the wall where we can keep you quiet for the rest of your life or where no matter what you say, it won't really matter for the rest of your life. That would have been Ned's opportunity to tell John who his mother was for certain. Uh, But no, no, that's not going to happen as we know. But I wonder if Cersei really even cared what Joffrey ended up doing with Ned. I mean, clearly this wasn't part of the plan. Did she really worry about the war escalating if Joffrey killed Ned? Because Cersei's got her daddy running the war against the Starks. And you would think that she'd put Tywin up against any Stark, even though Rob will give Tywin trouble. But would Cersei really give that any consideration at the time? Perhaps just because Ned is also a parent. Because I think something that often gets said but not really ingested by viewers is that Cersei's being a mother too. 
is Cersei going to any more extremes than Catelyn would to protect her children? And that's an interesting dynamic. Oh, yeah. Also, in this episode, uh, I talk a little bit about Pycelle. Treason is treason. Treason is treason. I don't do a very good Pycelle. Uh, our friend Bubba from the Joffrey podcast does a much better Pycelle than I do. But uh, at any rate, there you go. Uh, th- those kind of phrases are annoying. But a very Lannister loyalist. He's extremely loyal to the Lannisters. So he's going to play his part very well. And I think that he honestly believes what he's saying. Because, you know, Ned Stark acted out against someone of Lannister blood. Now, I don't know if Pycelle knows anything about him not having Baratheon blood or not, but he knows that he's at least part Lannister because he's Cersei's kid, and that's enough for him. The other interesting thing is, is you've got all these guys up there playing their role. You've got the Queen up there playing a role. You've got Littlefinger playing a role. You've got Varys chiming in on a word or two, and you've got Pycelle. And Pycelle actually managed to stay on the small council longer than anyone else up there. I mean, I guess if you count Cersei as part of the small council, maybe then you can say that too, but she's also become ruler. But Pycelle was part of the small council after Littlefinger went to the Erie. He was part of the small council after Varys had to defect to Pentos with Tyrion and then on to being at Daenerys' side. So really, Pycelle was the most loyal of any of those small council members. Here's a question. Questions. Questions. When you look back at this episode, and you think about the way you watched it the very first time you ever saw it, did you still believe that the Lannisters had killed Jon Arryn? I mean, Crazy Lysa is again telling lies to Cat about the Lannisters killing Jon Arryn here. So, do you give yourself at least a break for allowing yourself to believe that the Lannisters did, in fact, kill John Aaron instead of Lysa. Do you allow yourself that? Because I'm starting to wonder if I should have. And I did. I was wrong, man. I called even Littlefinger's theme. I called it the sinister Lannister theme until it became Littlefinger's theme. Clearly, during the, uh, the climb, I think was the episode, with the chaos is the ladder speech. That's when it became apparent to me that something was wrong there. Um, But it wasn't until the next season that I officially started calling it the Littlefinger theme because by then I had read A Storm of Swords and knew that it was a Littlefinger theme even before season four aired. Anyway, uh, I don't think I should give myself a break because clearly Lysa is bat bleep. She doesn't want to start a war with the Lannisters where her son Robin could get hurt. She's waiting on Littlefinger to come home. How can Littlefinger come home if there's a war in the realm? These are problems that Crazy Liza is considering. And I just didn't see it. I did not see it. I was fooled. I was a fool. How about you? Send an email to mattsaudioblog at gmail.com and give me your Crazy Liza experience. When did it hit you that Liza was lying to Cat the whole time? Again, it's easy to play the result, but I'm playing the result to my detriment 
right now saying, I should have seen it, but I didn't. Man, I was fooled. How about you? Matt's audio blog at gmail.com, M-A-T-T-S audio blog at gmail.com or M-A-T-T-S-G-O-T blog on Twitter. Another question. And John, who I haven't even mentioned in our discussion yet, and you'll probably only get this mentioned in in this question, but he's quite the hero in this episode. Almost isn't. I mean, he was lucky he didn't get hung by Alistair Thorne. He's wanted to do nothing but hang him since the moment he arrived, evidently. Well, at least since he started sticking up for Sam. But uh, because he's confined to quarters and because that drives the ghost crazy, he ends up saving Jorah Mormont. By the way, uh, there you go. There's your proof. John's hand does get burnt. He's not resistant to fire the same way Daenerys is. The questions that come out of this whole bit is, one, was that white on a specific mission to kill Lord Commander Mormont? Was Jorah Mormont on his list? Or was it just that Jorah Mormont was the one who was closest to wherever he had been put away in? Not exactly sure. I would like to think that the White Walkers were devious enough to be able to plot this stuff out and some kind of embed some kind of code in this White. Or maybe Jorah Mormont didn't treat this guy very well. And that's why he wanted to kill Jorah Mormont. Maybe his inclinations were his own and had nothing to do with the White Walkers. But you decide that. Let me know what you think. Um, the other question I have about this, though, is that there's this magic that Benjen speaks of that's in the wall that won't allow him to pass through because he's dead. So you would think that the Whites would have that same kind of restriction so when these two whites are brought in under the wall by John and Sam and the crew that went out to take their oath at the heart tree, is this allowed because they weren't animated while they were passed under? And how did they get reanimated once they got through? I, it, it's not clear to me. It seems like that if you couldn't pass through animated, then whatever that magic wall is that's restricting you from coming through animated would reflect any of the magic coming from the north side of the wall to reanimate these whites. Or maybe it's just proximity to the wall itself, and so once they got a certain distance from the wall, uh, they would not be animated, but they still have the potential of being animated, and then once they're pulled through, they're far enough away from the wall once again to where... You know, they can reanimate. It's a little flimsy. I love how, actually, how George ended up with the episode that, that gets all of these big moments. All of the Stark kids have to grow up. They have this huge attack. That's the kind of stuff that I really love. Another question, and this one relates back to Catelyn and her conversation with Rob, where she's saying, you know, you have to win this war now, buddy. Oh, no pressure, but we all die if you don't. And truth of the matter is, of course, they all die even when he does. But there's a conversation there in order to convince Rob about how evil Tywin Lannister is and how uh, it will mean all of their deaths if Rob loses. And They talk about it was the murder of the Targaryen children 
on the order of Tywin Lannister, at least according to Catelyn and Rob. Now, these are the children that we know later on in season four, Oberyn Martell was talking about, his sister Elia's children. So the thing to me is that if it seems like such common knowledge that somebody like Catelyn and Rob would both know that Tywin Lannister ordered the killing of these Targaryen children, why does Oberyn have to avenge himself against the mountain? Why hasn't it all been taken care of? Is it that Robert just turned a blind eye because Tywin was able to do the thing that he wouldn't be able to do? Kill children? The thing that he convinced he had to do when it came to Daenerys and uh, Viserys, but then told Ned right on his deathbed that Ned was right, that you shouldn't kill those children? Did Robert have any regret about killing these children? Why hadn't Oberyn Martell came forward and said to Robert, dude, you're at the top. The buck stops there, Harry Truman. Hmm. Too much? I don't know. I don't think it's too much to ask that question. But here's the question that I am obligated to ask, of course. Is there anybody out there that thinks Sirio's still alive? That somehow he survived his uh, little squabble with Marin Trant? Maybe even got taken to the Black Cells? Maybe he is a faceless man since he's from Bravos also. Maybe he's not, but maybe he survived. Maybe he'll just pop up to save Arya from herself someday. Anybody think that? Anybody? 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 Okay, well, that's the, that's the question you're obligated to ask in this episode, right? Here's some tidbits. Tidbits. Got a small list here, but number one, Barristan Selmy. The Undressing Knight. <laughs> I loved it. Again, it's a big moment. This is the moment where Barristan Selmy... I mean, he's being forced out anyway, but this is the moment where he chooses to become a king's guard to the people that gave him the job in the first place. Now, granted, he didn't like the Mad King, but we learn later on that he had a great deal of respect for Rhaegar. And that helped us kind of soften the blow for the fact that Rhaegar and Lyanna were actually in love rather than Rhaegar was like the Mad King. He wasn't the Mad King's son. He was a legitimate hero Targaryen that was on the wrong side of a war. It's Barristan's stories that help educate Danny. He defends her very well. He meets a brutal end to those creeps in Marine. But Barristan was considered honorable by Ned, so therefore everybody thinks Barristan's honorable. And he proves himself throughout the course of the series. But this is where he departs from King's Landing, and he never gets to see home again. That's kind of sad. That That's a new post-season five emotion to have to deal with, is that Barristan never gets to see home again. Once he departs from here and goes to wherever and then goes in search of Daenerys, you assume that he probably goes right across the narrow sea shortly after this. And so, yeah. His last look is upon King Joffrey as far as anything to do with Westeros. His last look at the Iron Throne, even though he desperately wanted to see Daenerys sit on the Iron Throne. Speaking of Daenerys, 
How about we do that little tidbit that I've got for this one? We've got uh, Daenerys's first real outward stance against slavery. Now, technically, she has to take all of these women as slaves for herself to keep them away from the other guys. But she does it in the open, in front of Drogo, against this Mago character. It is a, definitely a defiance against the Dothraki way. But come on, folks. Drogo, once again, is totally wrong. This is not her son speaking through her defiantly. This is Danny finding her own voice and using the comfort of having a guy that she's tamed in the bedroom to listen to her. And I'm not saying that he's making up excuses for her, but his mind won't allow him to see it any other way because the male is so dominant in this society. Now, I can't criticize Drogo for the way that he was brought up, but I cannot stand people who say that Drogo is so open-minded that he just suddenly listens to Danny and says, yeah, that's fine. No, he enjoys her defiance because he thinks it's something else in her. I mean, don't get me wrong. He believes what he believes. He believes that it's his son because he can't possibly believe that a woman would speak to him this way. You don't do that. Especially in my native language of Dothraki, is what Drogo is saying. (laughs) Oh, no. And in many ways, this is what indirectly leads to Drogo's death. The fight with Mago. The fact that he allows Mary Mazdur to treat him. That's all on Danny, in a way. Is Danny evil for this? No, of course not. Truth of the matter is, is Danny indirectly ended up doing herself a favor because she would always have to find a way to manipulate from the shadows with Drogo. But instead, with this and with what happens with Drogo and the pyre and everything else in the very near future, within two to three episodes, Danny becomes a leader. And everything that she gained, think about this, everything that she gained with her experience with the Dothraki will shape her entire future. She will free the Unsullied, and they will become part of her army. Her knowledge of the Dothraki ways allows her to take over the Horde and bring them along too. All of this power comes out of this first season's experience and a lot of her philosophy against slavery breaking the wheel this all comes out of this season and the way this season has shaped her as well can't go without mentioning Tyrion and Bronn everybody's favorite comedy duo and this one's fun too it's especially fun because Bronn, more or less, lays down the law that he kept the whole time. You want me as your bodyguard, you better pay me, bro. Bronn's philosophy never really changed. The people 
that he protects changes, but his philosophy is, you want protection? You pay me, bro. I am here for the money. I'm not here for your friendship or anything. Well, except maybe the fact that Braun actually did come to like Jamie a little bit, and he did come to like Tyrion a little bit. And so he helped them to meet once again in Season 7. But who knows how much Tyrion paid him for that, too. Anybody ever think about that? I don't know. The key here, though, of course, is Shaga, son of Dolph, who will cut off Tyrion's manhood and feed it to the goats. One of my favorite lines ever. Cut off your manhood and feed it to the goats. That is like, you know, that's the ultimate threat, is it not? Cut off your manhood and feed it to the goats. It's not even worth feeding to the lions. Feed it to the sheep. The goats. Yes. That's that's just awesome. And I love that, uh, that Tyrion uses that same threat against Pycelle in season two. And uh, Tyrion and Tywin. That dynamic is uh, <sighs> uncomfortable, to say the least. But we'll see how that all ends up being way more uncomfortable in the future, right? I think that's all I got for this episode in terms of my thoughts, except for my two little segments that we always do each episode. Three words is next. Three words. Describing the episode in three words. Three little words. Oh, what I'd give for that wonderful phrase. To hear those three little words. Three little words describe this particular episode this is where you try and describe the episode in three words feel free to submit yours for any season one episode and if you do so before june 2nd 2018 then it will be included in the three words special part of the feedback episode i think i made that pretty clear you can submit your three words by sending it via email to Matt's audioblog at gmail.com, M A T T S audioblog at gmail.com, or by tweeting them to at Matt's G O T blog, M A T T S G O T blog on Twitter. My three words for this time Stark's separation complete. Everything's being separated out now. Sansa and Arya are thrown to the wind. They will never see each other again until season seven, at least. Bran, other than seeing Rickon, will see any of his siblings either. And the only ones that he will ever see again will be Arya and Sansa. And by that point, he's not even really himself. So, he's really, once he separates with Rickon at the end of Season 3, that's the last time he ever really sees a Stark, as himself, anyway. And do you even really count the Rickon separation? Because... I mean, Bran goes north of the wall, and by the time he comes back, he's not himself. And uh, Rickon's already dead by that point. I mean, really, let's face it. Rick, all Rickon does is come back to see John and Sansa for a brief moment before he's arrowed down by Ramsay Bolton. That, that, ah, that makes me mad. That made me so mad. I wanted Rickon to have a future. And Sansa knew. 
that he wasn't going to have a future. Sansa called it. Oh, that made me mad when Ramsay did that. He really got under Jon Snow's skin doing that. Ah, ah, it makes me mad. Oh, now I'm on a whole other terror. And you know, I mean, who's to say that that's not what George will do when he writes the books? But we don't know yet in the books. As far as we know, Rickon and Osha did not end up at the Umbers. Speaking of which, let me just talk about this for a second. The Great John Umber, very pro-Stark. The rest of the Umbers, I guess not so much. Well, on the other hand, you might think all of House Stark is pretty much dead. The Ramsey Bolton slash, I guess his father first. Roose Bolton. They're the, they're the Wardens of the North now. Are the Umbers, I guess they have to comply with the Boltons. And if there's one thing that the Boltons want, it's that all of the Stark line be gone. Don't want any Starks coming into your newly acquired house and messing it up. Man, I'm just going off on all kinds of tangents here. I was just supposed to give you three words. And my three words are Starks, separation, complete. Aw, that's kind of sad. Glad they gave it to George, though. He did a good job with it. Brothelmates of the episode is next. Mates of the episode, the best couplings of the episode. L is for the way you look at me. O is for the only one I see. V is very, very extraordinary. E is even more than anyone that you adore can love. Brothelmates of the episode. This is where we try and find the best coupling of the episode if you're new around here. And if you're new around here, I will explain that it doesn't have to be two people to be the best coupling. It can be. It absolutely can be if you wish. But it doesn't have to be if you wish. For me, my brothelmates of this episode are Daenerys and Ferocity. While I think that Drogo is dead wrong about where her fearlessness comes from in this episode. Her speaking open to Mago and everyone is her first true step towards leadership that is out in the open and not necessarily in the bedroom about Drogo taking the iron chair for her, so to speak. He makes that pledge in the last episode because she put it in his mind and then when an attempt is made on her life, that seems a very logical place to go with his anger and that was a good scene but <laughs> again Drogo's just dead wrong about how he's going to deal with that anger such a savage um, but here because Daenerys shows that ferocity Drogo kind of respects it 
I think for the wrong reasons, he does think that it's coming from his son, not her. But if he'd have lasted long enough, if either of them had lasted long enough, he would have seen that Danny's ferociousness came out of being a dragon, not out of being a mother. Although, she probably would have made a pretty good mother too. Pretty good mother to her dragons. Oh yeah, except for all of that bit where she locked him away. And uh, that made Drogo not like her very much, too. Maybe not such a good mother. Who knows? Anyway, those are my brothel mates for this episode. What would yours be? You have until June 2nd. And if I get enough of these, then we'll make a big section in the feedback episode. Hope we do. Typically... It had been my experience in Podcast Winterfell that I got fewer submissions for brothel mates than I did for the three words. But prove me wrong this time. Find the best couplings for every episode. List them all to me. Get them to me by June 2nd. How? Send an email to mattsaudioblog at gmail.com, M-A-T-T-S audioblog at gmail.com, or tweet to Matt's G-O-T blog on Twitter. That's at M-A-T-T-S G-O-T blog on Twitter. Back with some final thoughts here in a second. Doing love can make it. Take my heart and please don't break it. Love was made for me and you. Alrighty, that concludes this episode covering the episode written by George R. R. Martin himself for all of us to enjoy, to partake in, to discuss. Don't forget, you have until June 2nd, 2018 to submit me any feedback about this or any other Season 1 episode to be included in our very first feedback episode. And what else? Oh! I keep forgetting because I'm pre-recording these. I forget what uh, is coming up. This coming up weekend will be Memorial Day weekend. And I just recently purchased tickets to go to Con of Thrones in Dallas. And if you are going to be there this Memorial Day weekend, I will be there on the Sunday. Full time, the Sunday only. I'm actually arriving, I think, Saturday evening, but I'll only be attending the con itself on the Sunday, and you can definitely, if you don't see me wandering around anywhere else, you will definitely find me at the Joffrey of Podcasts panel. I love Bubba. He helped me out with Podcast Winterfell for a long time. And uh, so now I want to see him and Catfish do their paneling in a way. They're going to be presenting a panel at Con of Thrones on the Sunday somewhat early i think either noon or one i gotta look at the schedule to make sure that i do not miss it but you will find me probably if possible in the front row giving bubba and catfish no trouble just a side-eyed stare as all of us do when we listen to their podcast and you'll hear me laughing as you always do when you listen to their podcast i'm sure so if you happen to be there, if you happen to be listening to this and you happen to be there, that's um, look May 27th, 
is the day of the panel. I arrive in Dallas on May 26th and will be staying at the Regency Hyatt. Hyatt Regency Hotel. Right there. On the campus. So, that's it. Again, remember, please support all of the great music artists that I put on this podcast. Thanks. All of the... uh, all of them are in the show notes. And we will see you on Memorial Day for a release, I suppose. That would be the next Monday. Yeah. So have a uh, solemn holiday, remembering those who gave their lives for America. And if you're not American, well, then just have a good Monday. We'll see you then. Bye. Bye.